going to make a switch in our scripture reading from what was put in the bulletin. And we're going to begin, we're going to read two passages, both from the Gospel according to Matthew, and you may turn first to Matthew 4. Originally I had intended to preach two sermons on Lord's Day 52 using Revelation 21 and 22, which set forth the very perfection that God has proposed for us in a life to come that Lord's Day 52 talks about. But instead I want to focus upon Jesus and His temptations. The Scriptures teach us And it is part of the gospel that we rejoice in that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are tempted yet without sin. So we're going to look at some of the temptations that faced Jesus and consider them as we read. So Matthew 4, which sets forth the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Notice it begins with temptation. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. And now let's turn to Matthew 22 and look at some of the instruments that the devil used then to tempt Jesus. Matthew 22 And let's begin reading with verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. 
And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife deceased and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh, and last of all, the woman died also. Also, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. We read that far. In God's holy word, turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, 
Lord's Day 52, and we're going to consider the sixth petition, question and answer 127. Which is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and besides this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes, till at last we obtain a complete victory. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we consider this morning the last petition. And this petition is very closely related to the previous petition. These two petitions, namely the prayer for forgiveness of sins, even as we forgive the sins of others, and the prayer that we be not led into temptation but delivered from evil, constitute the entirety of your spiritual needs and mine. Even as the prayer for bread covers all your physical needs, those two petitions cover all your spiritual needs. And there is a close relationship to them also. Both of them concern sin and death, the deliverance from sin and from death. And from the use of sin and death by the tempters, the devil, the world, and our own nature. But they are deliverances of two different sorts. The first asks for the blessing of God we know as justification. It is a request for God to so forgive our sins that He applies the blood and death of Jesus Christ which atoned for sins to our own conscience so that we, hearing God's word of forgiveness, have peace and joy. We know ourselves to be righteous before God. That's the first request. This second one completes the requests for all our spiritual needs. And it follows from the first for a number of reasons. I'm not going to get into all of them right now. But the catechism recognizes and the child of God recognizes when he makes the previous decision that he hasn't asked for everything. That our salvation in a real sense is not complete with only the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, with the forgiveness of sins, one indeed has the legal right to all deliverance. With the forgiveness of sins, one stands before God as entirely righteous. And yet, the very fact that we need to make the request indicates there's a certain incompleteness to our deliverance yet. I bring that up because in our own churches and related to the recent schism and among the doctrinal errors of many who left is the notion that the confession that Jesus is a complete Savior means that all of our salvation is now already complete. This notion, false, is easily refuted by Scripture and the creeds, and one can point to this Lord's Day as proof for that foolish notion. When the Catechism recognizes that the very prayer for the forgiveness of sins indicates we are still sinners, that indeed we have been delivered in a very real and true sense And a certain part of our salvation is finished, complete, done. And that is the atonement. That is the payment for our sin. But we remain sinners. And thus we pray, forgive our sins. And that is why always in a child of God who has faith, faith in Jesus who is a complete Savior, and what that really means is that Jesus is Savior of sin completely. That He saves us from every aspect of sin. Not only its power to accuse us from the shame and the guilt of sin, which is the first petition, justification, but also the power of sin. And so when we make this prayer, we're asking for the deliverance from the power the corruption of sin in this life. And we do that looking forward to what the Catechism says explicitly, till the day at last we obtain a complete victory. Consider with me this morning this prayer for deliverance, for what we pray, how God answers that prayer, and again, why we ask it. Let's consider, first of all, for what we pray, and I think even the children here see that there's a twofold request here for deliverance. Both pertain to deliverance. There is not two disconnected and entirely different requests here, but just like the previous petition, which comes in two parts, the previous petition was Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's one petition. So there's one petition here that is related. Lead us not into temptation, but but deliver us from evil. So there's one petition connected, and yet that word but tells us there's something different about the second part than the first part. And if we're to do justice to the prayer and our understanding of it, We need to understand fully both parts 
of that petition and how they're related. The first is, of course, negative, and the second part is positive. So it's looking at deliverance, deliverance in a negative sense and a positive sense. And it should be noted that this is much like the previous petition for the forgiveness of sins. Oftentimes we forget that even justification comes in two parts. There's two aspects always to the forgiveness of sins or justification. The first is that we are praying that God declare us no longer guilty, that God declare us innocent because the debt has been paid. Sin incurs a debt, and one cannot stand as righteous before God unless the debt is paid. And so we pray that the death of Jesus Christ and His blood being the satisfaction for what we owed is applied unto us so that we stand before God as someone with no debts to pay. That's one aspect. But don't forget that God's righteousness demands not simply the payment of a debt, but demands perfect obedience. So theoretically, one could imagine that a person has incurred a huge debt, and that debt is paid, nevertheless, one owes also perfect obedience. And where is that? Obviously, we don't have that. We can't bring that to God because we're sinners. And so God imputes that to us also. God looks us at us not simply as those who have no debt, but as those who have lived perfectly before Him. When there's an accusation that these individuals here are sinners, and we feel that accusation even in our own conscience, then we can respond not only is the debt been paid for my sins by another, but also the demand that I must perfectly obey God that I haven't done has also been met. That God looks at me as if I had perfectly done everything that He told me to do. And that you will find, and we recently read in the Lord's Supper form. So, justification comes in two parts. One, as it were, a negative, and the other as a sort of positive. And so also here. The deliverance that we're requesting comes in two aspects, and the first pertains to temptation. And that's mentioned first, of course, because temptation is that which is the source of all sin. All 
sin begins with temptation. That was the case for Adam and Eve. They could not sin really unless they were tempted. And the amazing thing that shows here that we ought to make this prayer is that Adam and Eve were perfect and still fell after temptation. Moving ahead just a little bit into the third point about why we must make this prayer, this point I will make right now. Because if you examine our prayers, and if you examine even the theology that from time to time appears in our own thinking, then we don't make this request as often as we should. Whether that indicates we don't see the need for this deliverance or some theological misunderstanding about our salvation, we need to make this prayer as much as we need to make the prayer for the forgiveness of sins. Even as we should respond to the fool who says, well, my sins are forgiven. I don't need to have that prayer on my lips. We would criticize that viewpoint. And so many of us dutifully and rightly, perhaps not always with the, mis- with the understanding that we ought to make, include in our prayers Forgive us our sins. But if you also examine your prayers, and we think about our prayers, that's often how we conclude them. Forgive us our sins. Amen. That's a mistake. Oh yes, we've asked for the deliverance known as the forgiveness of sins, but that's not the entirety of our deliverance. You've forgotten something. I've forgotten something. Include in your prayers... And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In fact, the former demands the latter prayer. And it's every bit, and I would even dare say, even more important. If one has the forgiveness of sins, then one should long desire. This should be on their lips and in their hearts. Every bit as, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Temptation. The temptation of Adam and Eve, who fell being perfect, ought to indicate how we need to make this prayer, especially considering who we are compared to who they were. Their sin began with temptation, and from that we learn something about temptation. Temptation is the appeal by someone evil, someone under the influence of Satan. As we're going to see, the source of all temptation is him. He works through them. And what they do, what temptations do, 
is basically teach us or try to fool us into imagining they tell us that to follow God's will is evil and to disobey God is good. Temptations come to us and they appeal to all sorts of things in an attempt to separate us from God, to look at God as evil. In fact, that's really one of the way God delivers us. He makes us see that words that are being spoken, whether it's in our mind or out loud and comes through our ears, are lies. They're lying in some way. They're twisting the truth. All lies really are temptations. And when we tell lies, it shows that we have fallen to temptation. With Adam and Eve, God came to Eve, or the devil came to Eve and tempted her first for a reason. Because she was not directly responsible but was under her head. God had given to Adam the command not to eat. And the temptation came looking at the tree and the fruit, trying to convince Eve that God was evil, that God had kept them from something good, that a God was a God who was jealous in an evil sense, that God didn't want them to know good and evil or they would be like Him. And temptation always eventually directly contradicts the Word of God. Be aware of that. Oh, temptations can come quoting the Word of God. Notice the devil and Jesus, how often the devil quoted the Word of God. He was quoting it word for word, but he was misapplying it, misusing it. And Jesus had to refute him with the word of God that applied perfectly to the situation, and that shuts the mouth of the devil. But he always directly contradicts God at some point. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt die. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt not die said the devil. That's always a sign of temptation. It's when we look at Jesus that we see more about what we're talking about with regard to temptation. And we should take note of that. The Bible takes note of that. That we need to glory and and worship God in Christ exactly because He is the one who was tempted in every point like we're tempted. The only difference is He did not sin. And notice His ministry begins that way. Satan knew that his claim to be the Christ had to be challenged. And Satan knew that if he could get him to fall at any point, we are all done for. Satan had learned how easily we are tempted into falling. It's a piece of cake for him. And keep in mind, he did that with perfect people. What does he appeal to? 
with regard to Jesus. Well, notice, first of all, he used the weakness of Jesus' own flesh. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and so he had a weakened human nature. A human nature, as it were, condemned by sin. And then not only that, just a human nature. Human natures, as created, get hungry. And God had made clear to him to fast. He was fasting. He was very, very hungry. And the devil tempted him to simply use his power, his God-given power, to make some bread. To turn stones into bread. What's the problem there? What's so wrong about that? You're hungry, aren't you? That ought to humble us to see what we're praying about. It teaches us that the devil will use lack of sleep, lack of food. He will use times when we are down and depressed. He was used times of mourning, anything to tempt us. And we often fall into these temptations because while these are real needs that we have, if we do not eat, we die. We are not made to be in mourning, but to have joy. We are hurt when we are lonely. Be aware of that. That's one of the reasons that God sends pastors and friends to us in our sickness and disease, because it's at those times that the tempter often shows up with the same kinds of temptations. He uses the very weakness of our bodies as human beings against us. But to be aware of that. He will use loneliness. He will use times of despair. He will use tears. He will use the desire to live against us. And then be aware that there may be times where he uses something that by itself seems to be legitimate. That God gives us the power and the capability to do like Jesus Turn stones to bread. What's wrong with that? Well, you see, we learn something even there. That even Jesus was not free to use the unbelievable divine power that he had for his own benefit and purpose. Not even to preserve his own life, as it were. And Jesus knew that more than we do. And the devil knew it too. The devil knew what Jesus' job was. He knew he was trying to tempt Jesus. If you don't eat, you're going to die. And if you die here, you can't even pay for the sins of your people. There were all kinds of things behind that. Strange temptation with regard to the temple and casting yourself down. He presents the promise of God, the sure promise of God. Surely if Jesus had tripped and fallen off a pinnacle of the temple, angels indeed would have swung down from heaven 
and borne him up, lest he be dashed on the rocks and fail to complete his mission. Notice the angels ministered to Jesus after all this. They're watching, they're near. But it would have been sin for Jesus to throw himself off. So why the temptation? What's the temptation there? Ah, Jesus, or the devil, uses those kinds of things too. The promises of God. God promises this and that. Therefore, you don't need to be careful. You don't have to worry about hurting yourself. You don't have to be concerned. God will take care of you no matter what. And He uses all sorts of these things. With Jesus, this was especially true as the Son of God. Nevertheless, we tempt God when we do such things. When we, as it were, deliberately place ourselves in danger. When I ignore the fact that I'm a married man who has a sexual drive and things like that, and I deliberately place myself where I will be tempted with the understanding, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, then that's the equivalent of listening to the devil to cast myself off the pinnacle. And yes, it's possible that if I'm a child of God, more than possible, God will save me. God will deliver me from the very adultery that I've cast myself into. But I may use that as an excuse to sin or to tempt God. We do that all the time. Well, you know, we can do this or that, and we're not going to hell. God's not going to cast us out. He, 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 he will forgive my sins, but I'm going to do this in any way. The devil tempted Jesus with glory and honor and tempted him of receiving glory and honor such like no man has ever had. To be the king of all the earth, and not only that, but he could receive it simply by putting a knee on the ground. That's it. That's all you had to do. Nod the head to Satan. Say, I'll become your stooge. But what a wealthy, glorious king he would have been. Think about it. Any man would have succumbed to that temptation. That's why it was made. But even more that, with that temptation came the implied threat. And if you don't take this offer, if you don't take this conditional offer, then you are going to pay the price. I will make your life miserable. I will see to it that you're put to death in ways that you can't imagine. I will see to it that the people hate you and despise you. And again, Jesus was preserved in temptation by quoting the Word of God. Then look at all the temptations that came from the direction of His own people. We read just a few of them. But notice these are all church people. These are all His own people. These are people in Israel. They come along with all kinds of temptations. Now they're trying to trip Him up. They're trying to expose Him as someone who's not the Christ. They put Him between a rock and a hard place. 
They try to trap him between allegiance to God and allegiance to the Roman Empire. They, they try all sorts of tricks. Do you see anything of that? Why I'm mentioning all this, people of God, is to set before us the reality that you and I are in a war. And there is really nothing worse for a Christian than to go about his life ignorant of that fact. And I fear that's often the way it is for us. We don't understand what we're praying for here. We don't understand that unless we are kept from temptation, we will succumb to the evil. And we need deliverance. And it doesn't just happen. God must do this. We even pray something that seems wrong, that God not even deliver us into temptation. God does do that. So ignorant, so stubborn, and yet so beloved by God that He will do that to expose our stupidity, to expose our pride, to expose who and what we are, and to make us see what the Catechism sets forth. You and I cannot stand a single moment on our own, and yet many, myself included, can often go through life not realizing all the arrows and the guns and the tanks and the bullets, spiritually speaking, that are aimed at you and me, from which we need protection. We need, and I've emphasized this morning, especially deliverance from temptation to be delivered from the evil. Now the idea of delivered from the evil expands on this quite a bit. And it's not just the evil of sin, but it's everything related to it. That petition looks forward to deliverance even from all the evil of this world. It looks forward to the day in which the child of God doesn't even need to pray, forgive my sins, because there are no more sins. It looks forward to the day when a child of God does not have a weakened, humble, lowly flesh anymore, where the depraved nature that is in our flesh is gone, and our flesh has been raised to newness of life, to the life incorruptible, all these things that God has set forth, looking forward to the day when all those things that tempt us, the devil and the world, and all the false people in the church, and our own nature are all gone. And of course it prays for preservation until that day. We're praying that God will keep us against all these enemies. And you and I will never make that prayer if we don't recognize we have those many enemies, that many enemies. I hope that's not why we often leave that out of our prayers. I hope it's not that we think to ourselves, well, my sins are forgiven. That's, that's all I need to be delivered from. Or the rest is up to me. God has forgiven my sins and now I stand on my own strength. I have the Spirit. I'm regenerated. Why, everything else just is going to happen. That would be foolishness. And notice too, that this arises from the recognition that I must be delivered from evil. The adulterer, 
the idolater, the thief, the drunkard, has no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. There's no place for him there. We need to be delivered from these sins and temptations that would drag us into the devil's lair. So what are we praying for? How does God answer this prayer? And the answer is He sanctifies us. The other great, great, great work of God. And make no mistake, it's the work of God. Oh yes, God answers this petition by delivering us so that we are no longer tempted and we will no longer sin. That's what we're praying for when we look forward to the day when there's no one, nothing, trying to trip me up, trying to put its clutches around me and drag me down to hell, the day when I don't even have a thought that goes through my mind that says it would be good to disobey God. This is fun. This has no consequences. But at the same time, one looking way, way ahead also recognizes that I need to be delivered from that now. It's not this way that we expect God to answer this prayer by leaving us alone to do whatever we do. It's not that we make this prayer and then expect God to simply say, well now, you go ahead and do whatever you do. Your sins are forgiven, and that's good enough. And eventually, someday, in the future, you'll die and be freed from your flesh, and there's your deliverance. No. Child of God, who has prayed, Lord, forgive my sins, hates sin. Has learned that the way of joy and happiness is God's way. And is praying even now, Lord, more and more sanctify me so I'm not so tempted. Do not lead me into temptation such that I even need the extreme remedy of the church's discipline. Free me from this or that sin so that I don't need thy chastening hand so heavy upon me. This is not a request that we be isolated from the world or even a request that God so improve our depraved nature that that's why, that's why there is a certain and real victory over sin in our life now. No, no. We may not misunderstand. This is not a prayer for God to improve our depraved nature. They don't improve, ever. In fact, in many ways, as a child of God is sanctified and delivered, according to this prayer, he sees more and more and more and more of his depravity. How wicked and sinful he really is in his inmost being. And it doesn't go away. It doesn't improve. What God does is gives us his spirit. He changes our heart so that we can live according to the new man. And once we have that, we realize to be delivered, we need to be freed entirely from the old man. And we even come to the point where we long for death. 
So why do we make this prayer? Well, Jesus told you to. That would be enough again. The fact that Jesus gives us two petitions with regard to our spiritual state ought to be instructive too. But let's go back and realize that prayer is by faith. And faith is knowledge and assurance of things. This is a prayer that a child of God makes because God has taught him. God has taught him two things. Number one, about yourself. We make this prayer because God teaches us that sin is the exact opposite of what the devil says it is. It is horrible. It is a bondage. It is something that when you give yourself to it, gets worse and worse and worse. It hardens. It destroys. It corrupts. It drives one from God. It adds to our guilt. It even brings with it often a driving away of God such that we imagine we save ourselves. And we can deliver ourselves from our sins and extract ourselves from the pits that we've jumped into. No, God teaches us. You don't live by yourself. You don't stand by yourself. You're too weak. You're too sinful. You need me. You need to trust in me. You see, that's the other thing that God teaches us so that we make this prayer. There's plenty of people in the world who could tell you all about sin. They won't call it sin, but they've experienced what it can do. They've experienced how it can ruin lives and marriages and all sorts of things. But they won't go to God. They might go to some power higher than themselves, but not God. The child of God goes to God because God has taught him again. God has taught him that, number one, he may go to God because his sins are forgiven. He may go to God and even must go to God because God loves him. That's why God sent the Savior. And he goes to God because he recognizes there's only one power, one will, one mind, one heart that's stronger than temptation and sin. Only one. God. God teaches us that. Sometimes God teaches us that by giving us over to very temptation that we pray about here. Such is the power of God. Such is the need for repentance. Such is the need for deliverance. God will do such things to us to make us cry out, Lord, deliver me. The child of God also makes this prayer because he has come to learn there's no deliverance in this body and in this flesh and in this world. It must come in the future. It must come through death. It must come through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, pray not simply and only forgive us our debts, forgive my sins, but, O oh Lord, lead me not 
into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we need deliverance. Oh yes, oh yes, we have received the forgiveness of sins. Thou hast placed us in a good place. Thou hast made us members of Christ and of His church. But that has only served to make us see yet more and more our need to be delivered from sin and from death. So this, O Lord, is our prayer together this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.